Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's a kind of a bigger chunk of scripture than we're normally used to looking at. It's verses 5 through 15, uh, but it reads, reads fairly quickly. So follow along with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, where it says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret, which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard of their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Uh, after this manner, therefore, pray, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And now the Lord's Prayer uh, is, is familiar. Uh, it's familiar to believers and to unbelievers alike. Now reciting the Lord's Prayer, it hardly <laughs> offends anybody. Uh, it's really better called the model prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer is actually in John chapter 17. That's the prayer that the Lord himself prayed. Uh, now, there's no intrinsic, special, spiritual value in reciting the Lord's Prayer, except that you are reciting the Word of God. Uh, since we're told to stay away from vain repetition, just saying the Lord's Prayer for the sake of saying the Lord's Prayer, uh, the, the, there's not a lot of, 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 of importance there. The Lord's Prayer is set within the context of, uh, of our identity as children of our Heavenly Father. Prayer is one of the greatest acts of a believer. Uh, I mean, talking to God, whether it's by spoken word or by thought, it is, it is the actual act of you fellowshipping with your, with, with, with your Heavenly Father. Now, now, prayer is, is the most intimate act that, that a person can be involved in. I mean, it, it surpasses even the intimacy of, of, of a husband and wife. And, and the reason is that prayer is between you and the one who looks into your soul and sees everything. He sees your fears, he sees your secrets, he sees your sins, he sees your ambitions, he sees your selfishness, he sees your failure, he sees your shame. And still he desires intimacy with you, and still he loves you. Now if your spouse saw what God sees, they might still love you. They will probably need a lot of therapy first. <laughs> but your Heavenly Father can handle it. 
it is it is it is a beautiful wonderful privilege that we have to pray see prayer is is its relationship with your heavenly father verse 8 says thy father or your father depending on your translation uh, our father in heaven it says in verse 9 see prayer prayer is not getting god to give you what you desire prayer is changing your desires to align with god's and prayer is total confidence in god's plan and god's purpose for you so we're going to take this apart like we normally do the first section is going to be verses five and six and what we see again like we saw in the previous section is some wrong prayer motives prayer once again here is is presupposed it says and when thou prayest so he's kind of thinking that all right they're going to be praying already one commentary says you may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. Now look at verse 5 again. It says, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites, for they love praying, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, uh, so they can be seen of men. And, and Jesus says again, I tell you, they have their reward, just like they, uh, we, we saw in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. They have the answer to their prayer, so to speak. They have the attention that they wanted. So, so why do we pray? Do we pray for men to see or do we pray for God to hear? The problem is not public prayer so much because we, we pray in public here, but, but it's our motives being directed towards other people rather than being directed towards God. The chief thing that they aimed at was to, was to be commended by the people that saw them and to get their praise. Oh, they must be so spiritual. Listen to how they pray. They didn't love prayer for prayer's sake, but they, but they loved it because it gave them the opportunity to be noticed. It gave them the opportunity to, to be perceived as more spiritual than they really were. You know, our prayers can take, can take many forms. You know, it can be as, as, as elegant and as graceful as a hummingbird. You know, just a nice, quiet hum, very, very direct, very precise. Our prayers can be like a woodpecker. I'm going to stab this tree bug with my face knife. You know, just <laughs> the form is not what's important. That we pray and that we pray to God and not for people to hear. It's the motive why we do what we do. Look at verse 6. It says, but thou, when thou prayest, so we have an antithesis here. Okay, we've seen how the hypocrites do it. But when you do it, enter into your closet, shut the door, so that you're praying in secret and not for the people to hear. That's why we've titled the message for your ears only. It's our, our, our prayers are for God only to hear. We, we need a, a private time for prayer. We need this both for ourselves and for the sake of others, for those on our prayer list, uh, because the litmus test of our prayers is whether our eyes are going to be on the Father or people watching. Well, if we seclude ourselves away from other people, then people can't be watching. 
Secret prayer is to be performed in solitude so that we can be unobserved, so we can avoid the flamboyance, so we're undisturbed, so that we can avoid distraction, and it's unheard by anybody but God. And, and when we know that the only person hearing us is God, that gives us unlimited freedom in what and how we pray. See, what passes between God and our own souls needs to be out of sight. Instead of praying in the synagogues and the corners of the street, we enter our closet into some place of privacy and some place of seclusion. See, Isaac went into a field. Jesus would often go up onto a mountain. Peter went up on the hill, um, not hilltop, housetop. One commentary says, public places are not proper for private, solemn prayer. Verses 7 and 8 tell us our, our, our right prayer methods. All right. um, verse 7 says, But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard uh, for their much speaking. We're instructed to pray thoughtfully. Okay? Engage your brain in your prayers. Do not keep babbling like the pagans, it says. And the babbling means to talk rapidly and continuously in a foolish, excited, incomprehensible manner. Babbling prayer is described like, like the babbling of a brook over, 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 over the rocks. Yes, a lot of noise, but, but, but there's nothing distinguishable there. And that Greek word here means to repeat the same words. Uh, like, like, like chanting or, uh, or saying the rosary or liturgical prayers, uh, empty phrases, using religious jargon a lot, uh, just babbling here. It means speaking without thinking. So that means that, that, that the words don't have any meaning to them. And Jesus forbids us to pray with our mouth engaged when our mind is not engaged. Remember on uh, Mount Carmel, Baal's priests were, I mean, they were hard at it, remember, from morning until evening. I mean, Elijah had, had, had set the stage, and, and, and you know, they were praying, and they were cutting themselves, and, and they were using their vain repetitions, oh, oh, Baal, hear us, oh, Baal, hear us, oh, Baal, hear us, and I did that all day long, and nothing happened, of course, because they were praying to a false god. Uh, but Elijah, in a serious, composed manner, with very very concise words got his prayer answered. Now, several reasons for that, of course, is because God's actually alive and Baal's a false god. Uh, but we see the example between just, just babbling words and a thoughtful prayer. See, pagans, their, their, their prayers typically tried to, to remind the false god that the gods owed them for something. They, they, you know, they had done these false gods' favors. They had sacrifices offered to them. So, so they're attempting to get a response from their false god on you know, contractual means. Hey, I've done all this for you. You owe me. All right? That's, that's how, how they approach this. See, we're, we're children. We're adopted into God's family. He is our heavenly father. Children do not use long speeches to get their parents' attention. Right? Mom! You've got mom's attention. Or if you really want to get mom's attention, just be quiet for a while. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
we need to approach our Heavenly Father with that, with that disposition of, 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 of love and reverence and dependence and not thinking that we're going to tie God up or manipulate God into doing something. It's not, it's not much praying that's condemned. It's much speaking that's condemned. We're commanded to pray always, but the danger of this is when we just say our prayers and don't pray our prayers. Now look at verse 8 again. Be not you therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. See, God is, isn't ignorant. We don't need to instruct him. Uh, God's not, not, not hesitant, so we don't need to try to talk him into anything. Well, then, then what's the point of praying, right? If he knows what we have need of, why do we pray? Well, we pray in order so that we can express our dependence through faith on him. We pray so that we can relieve ourselves of the worries by pouring our worries and concerns on him. See, Jesus predicated effective prayer on this relationship of intimacy, not a business partnership like we're going to somehow manipulate God and obligate him to answer us. Prayer is not informing God of your need. Prayer has other purposes. Confession of sin, of thanksgiving, of, of praise, of glorifying God, of, of acknowledging dependence on him, of intercession, of fellowship, of relationship. Don't you enjoy it more when your kids or your grandkids just want to get up in your lap and just talk to you instead of, you know, rattling off a list of things they want from you? I mean, we love our grandkids, and we'll have them in our lap any time we can, and if all they want to do is ask us for a big list of things, we're still happy to have them, and we might get them, most of them, probably, if we can. But it's, but it's so much sweeter just to have them come up and just want to talk to us. Prayer is for submission. Prayer is for worship. It's for adoration. It's for enjoyment. It's for strengthening. Matthew Henry says there is a sharp contrast between the gods of the heathen and our heavenly father. He is addressing his own disciples. Jesus is addressing his own disciples. The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry and thirsty souls, the merciful, the poor in heart, the peacemakers who allow themselves to have all manner of evil set against them for the Son of Man's sake. In short, the newborn children of God who, making God their Father's interests their own, are here assured that their Father in return makes their interests His and needs neither to be told nor to be reminded of their wants. See, we, we pray to discover how God is moving in our lives and, and how he is directing us to catch up with his purposes. Jesus intends our minds and hearts to be involved in what we are saying to him. 
And it's only then that we have that, that, that true communion, the true fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Now we see verses 9 to 13. We have the right prayer mechanics, all right? Uh, the right prayer mechanics. There are mechanics to every relationship, right? Uh, there, there's openness. There's, there's trust. There's, there's love and forgiveness and honesty. There's flexibility. There's sacrifice. There's fulfillment. There are mechanics to conversation. You know, put the phone down, eye contact, open posture, facial expression. Well, there are mechanics to prayer. Now, remember that this is a model prayer. There's, there's seven things that are asked for, seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer. The first three have to do exclusively with God. Okay? Thy name be hallowed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And they occur in a descending order from God down to, to, to you know, him manifesting himself in his kingdom and then, then all the kingdom being in subjection to him. The remaining four have to do with us. All right? Give us daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Those are in an, an, an ascending order from our physical needs all the way through to the final deliverance of all evil. Just like the Ten Commandments, remember the first four had to do with our relationship with God and the last six, our relationship with one another. So, so look at verse 9. He says, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Here we are taught that we pray only to God the Father, not to saints, not to angels, not to passed on relatives, but to God himself. True prayer directs our eyes to our heavenly Father. Jesus is teaching us that prayer is primarily a relationship from our, our heart mind okay, to the Father. We're, we're not beggars. We're not lobbyists. Okay, we're children going to our Heavenly Father. And the Father expresses his, his relationship, his, his nearness. But when it says Father in heaven, that expresses his, his distance, his, his separateness. So we have a holy, loving familiarity in Father, and then we have an, 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 an awe-filled reverence when it says in heaven. That is our heavenly Father. And hallowed, that's the word for, uh, for sanctified, uh, regarded and treated as holy, uh, not taken in vain. God's name, is, is, it means himself as revealed and manifested. The only things we know about God or what God has told us about him, and he reveals himself through his names. So we give glory and praise and worship to God. So it's really not so much a petition, like we're asking for something, but it's more adoration. It's more appreciation. It's more acknowledgement. So we begin our prayers with praising our God. Then look at verse 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. 
the kingdom of God is that spiritual kingdom where, where our, our, our heavenly father, our God of grace, is, 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 is setting up his rule in, in this fallen world. His, his subjects consist of as many of us as have been brought into submission to his reign. And wherever there are those submitted to the throne of God, God's kingdom has come. Now it says, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, or like it says in uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 2, as in heaven, so upon earth. Uh, now how is God's will to be done? How are we to do God's will? How do we want God's will carried out? Well, cheerfully, constantly, perfectly, willingly, completely, we are to, to cooperate with God in the fulfilling of his will. Now look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, give us this day the bread which is this day's necessity, we could say. One of the sweetest privileges we have as children of this Heavenly Father is, is that we can, we can come to him and, and, and we, can, we can tell him our needs. We can cast our physical needs on him. kind of reworded a section that I got out of a commentary that I think is uh, it, 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 it was devotional for me through this and, and I normally don't find stuff like this when, when I'm getting a sermon ready but this fellow said that, the, that every word here has a lesson in it in verse 11 we ask for bread right? that teaches us seriousness and restraint right? we ask for bread not for trappings, not for embellishments. Uh, we ask for what is wholesome, even if it's uncomfortable. Secondly, we ask for our bread, and that teaches us honesty and teaches us productiveness. We do not ask for the bread out of other people's mouths. We don't ask for the bread of deceit. We don't ask for the bread of idleness, but the bread that is honestly gained. Thirdly, we ask for our daily bread, which teaches us not to take thought for the morrow, uh, which we'll see when we get to verse 34, but we constantly depend on the Lord as those that live from hand to mouth. Fourthly, we, we ask God to give it to us, not, not to sell it to us, not to lend it to us, but to give it to us. Number five, we pray Give it to us. Okay, that's, that's not just to me only, but to other people with me. It teaches us charitable giving, compassionate concern for the poor. And, and, and it suggests that we ought to pray with our families and with our households. Since we eat together, we ought to pray together. The sixth thing it says, we pray that God would give us this day our daily bread which teaches us to renew the desire of our souls towards God. Just like the needs of our bodies are renewed daily, we must pray to our Heavenly Father and reckon that, uh, that we could as well go a day without food as a day without prayer. Now look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray for daily pardon just the same as we pray for daily bread. Uh, that, that, that obligation of punishment has to, be, has to be canceled, has to be done away with. Uh, that is done by us confessing our sins and forsaking it before God. Our duty is to forgive our debtors. That is, that is our, our responsibility. 
Jesus is teaching us in the most emphatic manner conceivable to to regard this view of sin here as as primary, as, as fundamental, that sin is a debt owed. Sin is an offense against a God demanding reparation to his dishonored claims. It's because we have rebelled against the king and we are not in subjection to him as we should. And as the debtors in the creditor's hand, so the sinners in the hands of God. See, the Jews taught, um, they looked at sins as debts. The same word could be used for both. They, they use sin and debt interchangeably. Uh, now, the biblical law, the Old Testament law, especially if you want to go to the book of Leviticus and read this, uh, it required the periodic forgiveness of monetary debts. It's the seventh year, the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all the debts were to be wiped. Uh, so, so that illustration of forgiveness would have been graphic for them because the lawyers, the experts in the law, had figured out ways to circumvent the law and they could continue to lend money even when they weren't supposed to. See, when, when God forgives, and you need to get this, when God forgives, he purposely forgets that he has the right to retribution. He purposely removes from his mind his right to punish you. That's what happens when God forgives. The removal from God's own mind of his displeasure against you on account of your sin, the wiping or the crossing out of the book of remembrances, all the entries against you, all of your account is wiped. Him doing this for us, purposely forgetting that he has the right to punish us, it requires that we do it for those that have wronged us. One commentary says, no one can reasonably imagine himself to be the object of God's forgiveness who is deliberately and habitually unforgiving towards his fellow man. So it is a beautiful provision to make our right to ask and expect daily forgiveness of our daily shortcomings and our final absolution and acquittal at the great day of admission into the kingdom dependent upon our consciousness uh, conscious decision of forgiving those that are indebted to us we must forgive those as god has forgiven see god god sees his own image reflected in us when we forgive okay? he he we we mirror him if we are forgiving people but to ask god for what we ourselves refuse to give is an insult to God. Now look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This has two parts. All right. Um, if we honestly seek and, 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 and have assurance of forgiveness for past sins, then we're going to do our utmost to avoid continuing to commit sins in the future. But if we are, as one commentary says, if we are conscious that that when we would do good, evil is present with us, then we are, we are taught to offer this sixth petition. 
which naturally flows uh, the preceding one and, 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 and flows instinctively from it in our hearts. Right? If, if God will forgive us as we forgive our debtors, then we naturally pray, God, don't allow me, help me not to be put in debt. Now, now the temptation here um, originally meant trial or test, like we see in James chapter 1, verse 2. And, and, and there's some difficulty with the way it's written here, but because we know that God brings his people into times of testing. We know he does that. It says it in James. He did it with Abraham. Even Christ himself was led out into the wilderness to be tested, tempted. Uh, things that, that, that try us. Things that test our strength and test our faith. I think it's better read, don't, don't, don't let us sin when we are tested. Don't let us be sifted. See, God does test us. He tests our faith, but he never tempts us. He never tests us. He never offers us evil. In the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, you know, Jesus went to Peter and to James and to John and say, hey, look, pray that you enter not into temptation. That's the idea here. Lord, when, when the testings come, keep me strong so I don't fail. When you try my faith, when you test me to show me where I need to grow, God, keep me right. Keep me holy. Keep me from falling in that test. And then we see the second part of verse 13. Um, he is, God is infinite majesty. The holy Lord God almighty. And he's our dad. At the same time, this changes the way we commune with him. He is a king, and it's our privilege to come before such power and such majesty and such glory. It's his identity as both our father and the king of everything that changes and and manages the way we pray. The plea here has, has really kind of a reference to what happened at the beginning here. It, it's our, our Father in heaven, thy, thy kingdom come, for thine is the kingdom. Thy will be done, for thine is the power. Hallowed be thy name, for thine is the glory. He kind of wraps it all together. And again, the best pleading with God is the praising of God. And it, uh, it becomes us as his children to be abundant with our praising of God. Now we get to verses 14 and 15. We're going to use verse 14 and 15 as our conclusion here. Um, we look at verse 14. And it says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's as if he read their minds and knew exactly what part of this model prayer that they would get hung up on. Forgiveness, the ability, the willingness to forgive is, is an indication of a relationship with, with the Father. It's, it's, it's an indication of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It's indication of redemption by the Son of God. 
And the principle of forgiveness that Jesus states here seems to be that only people of grace that have experienced God's grace know how to accept and give grace. The forgi- those, those who have been uh, forgiven much know how to forgive much. They've learned how to forget that they have the right to retaliate. See, when you are wronged, you think you've got the right to wrong back. That you've got the right to seek retaliation. You've got the right to, to, to seek justice on your own. And in some cases, you might. But forgiveness is forgetting that right. It's letting go of that right to retribution. Those who have found mercy with God show mercy with others. Now, verse 15 is difficult. Verse 15 says, But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Saved people can't not forgive. It's in our spiritual DNA. Saved people must forgive the debts, the violations that others have committed against us. Yes, we have the, the right, and it is right to expect it not to happen again. But if we will not forgive, then we must reexamine our claim to salvation. Love leads to forgiveness. The two greatest works or two greatest results of the Holy Spirit given us spiritual life is our capacity to love as Jesus loved us and the capacity to forgive as the Father forgave us. So much so that scripture says that if you will not love and you will not forgive, you are not part of the kingdom. Now, that's not the only condition, of course, for being in the kingdom. There has to be repentance and faith and the new obedience. But, but, but if these are present, uh, those will be. And if those are present, these will be. Because as one commentary says again, he that relents towards his brother shows that he repents towards God. So the hard thing that Jesus closes with in this section is that your father, whom, whom you call father, and who as father offers you his grace on reasonable terms, will nevertheless not forgive you if you do not forgive others. See, Christ came into the world as, as, as the great peacemaker, not only to reconcile you to God the Father, but to reconcile you to one another as well. And, and, and we, we must comply with this concerning him. It, 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 it's, it's a great presumption that has dangerous consequences. To, to make light of uh, to make light of something that Jesus puts a lot of stress on. He could have repeated any part of this model prayer that, that, that he wanted, but he chose to come back to this. We must forgive because we have been forgiven. Why 
must I forgive that person who has so horribly hurt me? Because your heavenly father, whom you have so horribly violated with your sin, has forgiven you. That is why you must forgive. Because you have been forgiven. Stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, this morning we, we look into your word and, and some of it, Father, is, is, is easy. We, we understand and we get to the end here about forgiveness. And Lord, it is hard. Lord, it is hard to let go. We want to strike out. Our flesh wants to stab at the one that has caused us pain. But Father, I pray that you would work in us if we have a hard time forgiving. But Father, you do this, the work in us that, that, that the Holy Spirit does is, is convict us of that sin that we may repent of it, that we may trust you with the retribution necessary. But just as you have forgiven us of all the times we have violated your holiness, that we can forgive those who have slighted us. And Father, when we pray, help us understand, Lord, of the preciousness of this relationship with you. Lord, we want to do good. We want you to be happy with us. We want you to be pleased with our lives. And we want you to, to enjoy our company as much as we enjoy yours even more. Father, help us with this, please. We need your help to be good uh, prayers and apt forgivers. We commit ourselves to you to do this work, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you come?